Greetings again, everyone. Divorce is in the air out where I live. Young couples, people you wouldn't know if I told you their names, that I know fairly well, have split recently. In one case, one young gentleman has moved into town. Another one, I think, is in the process of separating out the belongings, the house, the children. And they talk about it sometimes a little bitterly on the side. You don't want to intrude into other people's problems or into their private lives, so you simply do not ask. But sometimes, in some comment they might make in passing, they will let you know their particular point of view. I ran into one young lady at the cafeteria the other day and asked her how she was getting along, and of course, she is in a process of divorce. Mr. Dart was telling me the other day in the cafeteria line that there are statistics that illustrate that the average American young woman who divorces, perhaps having children, has a reduction in her living capacity or her spending power by somewhere in the order of 75% the first year. Now, what is it that happens to us that can bring a relationship that began with infatuation, attraction, mutual admiration that developed into the deepest kind of love that led us to the altar and that made us put together a home and have children and can eventually cause this entire thing to rupture and to split apart. We can point to hundreds of things, but I want to zero in on just one specific aspect of human nature today and talk about it. What is it that causes people who have done what we see is happening after services today, put their hand to the plow spiritually, make a lifelong, eternal commitment to Jesus Christ of Nazareth and the kingdom of God, and to become baptized, and 15, 20, 30, even 40 years later, somehow change their minds, depart from the church, become very angry, perhaps, at the local pastor, other brethren of the church, the local deacon, the leadership of the church, and simply go out of the church. Any person who has been in the ministry for very long, whether he be Methodist, Baptist, Episcopalian, Lutheran, Seventh-day Adventist, or a Catholic priest, will tell you that church memberships are not static, that they're very, very fluid, that people by the tens of thousands are going in and out of different church organizations every single year that oftentimes there are people who are sort of professional church hobbyists who change their church membership every three, four, five years. But it must be a very, very painful process, and there are roots, there are reasons why this occurs. Now, we all know the phenomenon of birth is very, very beautiful. I have a young grandson here today. We all study and we look at the process of development of we human beings as we grow physically, first of all. Eventually, we hope, intellectually and mentally, and thirdly, perhaps the last way a lot of us ever mature is emotionally, and of course, lastly, we mature spiritually, hopefully. I have long felt that as a result of the force-feeding of television and young Americans by the tens of millions who sit down in front of the one-eyed monster and actually view more television in the course of their preschool experience than they will ever experience in formal education in their entire lives, and that most of that television is made up of violence and absolute trash, much of which should never even be viewed by a rational human being. It is no wonder to me at all that youngsters, clear down in grade school, can be committing violent acts, actually murder, kill their own parents, kill each other, get into horrible fights on the playground, 
can be found, especially in some of the poverty pockets in the areas like Bedford-Stuyvesant, San Francisco, some of the big cities where we find minorities in a poverty group, disenfranchised people, young mothers who have five or six children, no visible means of support. The kids are simply out on the street, and their compatriots are pimps, prostitutes, drug pushers, criminals, petty thieves, and the like. That these kids don't really have an opportunity for normal development in the way that my grandson is going to have in the way that a child who perhaps has parents in a church, in a stable environment, parents who believe in the principles of God, parents who believe in a good education, parents who are able to provide those things to a child. Not a day goes by but what you hear of some of the most incredible acts of violence perpetrated in the home, between and among spouses, parents and children, close relatives, and in fact, as the police dockets will tell you, much of homicide is in fact homicide and has moved indoors into the American home. I think it was the day before yesterday they put to death four people in the United States, two in one state. Someone commented on the news that was the highest number of people who had paid the ultimate penalty for crimes since the 1960s, after the Supreme Court has now again reversed what it earlier had advocated that the death penalty was in fact the proper penalty for murder and for acts such as some of these people perpetrated. When I heard of the young man who was put to death up in Utah, I almost applauded because it was the only case of which they told me on the news what he had done. In the other cases, I didn't know what in the world these murderers had done. They just said so-and-so was put to death and his relatives were across the street with placards begging the judge or the governor to give him a stay of execution at the last moment. The fellow they put to death up in Utah the other day at gunpoint forced five people to drink Drano and then shot every one of them in the head systematically. I don't understand how any human mind, I just do not understand how a human mind can get to the point of such anger, such hatred, such wrath, such utter contempt and cynicism toward the value of a human life that it can perpetrate such an act. But the Word of God is very explicit. In the fifth chapter of the book of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount, it talks about those who killed in old time were in danger of the judgment, or in danger of the judgment, verse 21. The old law of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, smiting for smiting, burning for burning, life for life, which actually was quite effective in ancient Israel and should be in vogue today, and we wouldn't have the crime we do. But Jesus said, I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother, many of the manuscripts omit without a cause, because it is admitted that very likely there could be a cause, and we see that Jesus was given plenty of cause. So the earliest manuscripts do not have the expression without a cause, shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, now that's an untranslated word that means you vain, empty-headed fool. It means said with anger, you idiot, and really meaning it from the heart. It is complete hatred and contemptuousness toward a fellow human being, and by extension, obviously, your brother is any Vietnamese you've never met, any person from Tibet any Chinese, Japanese, or minority in the United States. In other words, by extension, it's any human being made in the similitude of God. 
It doesn't have to do with your brother and your family or your brother and your church or your lodge or your social group or someone in your knowledge or immediate environment. Whoever says that, and of course it's just not a light thing in jest, but it's something that comes out of the heart where you say in contempt and hatred toward a human being, you're an empty-headed idiot, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, thou fool, shall be in danger of Gehenna fire. Now, as Mr. Dart pointed out, the word Gina comes from the old Hebrew Hinnom, and it had to do with a valley, a precipice right in Jerusalem. It was not an ever-burning fire, but a garbage dump. And they knew exactly what Jesus meant when he said you would be in danger of Gehenna fire, because that's where the bodies of criminals were tossed, where animals who were unclean were shoveled off the edge, just like an ever-burning garbage dump in some towns until the anti-pollution laws uh, said that that could not be done any further. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has anything against you, leave there your gift before the altar and go your way, because God isn't going to listen to you. As long as you have anger, hatred, contempt, animosity, jealousy, resentment toward any other human being in your heart, you can get on your knees and you can pray by the clock. You can go to church for a decade. You can do any kind of religious act or deed you would like. You can visit the sick. You can take bags of food to the poverty-stricken. You can write articles. You can preach sermons. You can travel hundreds of miles. And as long as you have that little germ of rancor, hatred, or contempt toward another human being, it doesn't do you a bit of good. It is all as if you don't even have the plug in the wall. There's no flow of any current whatsoever. You're just not getting through to God because your sin, which is down there somewhere hidden in your heart, even if you dissemble in front of other people, and there's nothing more deceitful than people to say, how are you doing with a big smile on their face when they meet in public when in fact they hate one another underneath? I've had that happen many a time. And I see that people, when they do go the route of divorce, oftentimes I've heard divorcees say, oh, we're just the best of friends. Now, that's absolute nonsense. That is, on the surface, it means that when we meet, we somehow subdue that part of us which led toward our huge eruption, and we manage to become, you know, civil to each other. But obviously, something has to happen, and it's always two-sided. There is never, there has never been a case like that in the history of this world, whether it's a person leaving a church well, there was not some cause which might have been able to have been detected by the leadership, by the pastor, the minister, by the other people who were the cause of the offense. There are always two sides. You know, wise old King Solomon said, a brother offended is harder to win back than it is for a mighty to take a city, that is, for an army to advance and actually take a fortified town. And that's very, very true. A brother offended is very, very hard to win back. I want to turn to a couple of scriptures that have to do with some of the best examples I've seen of when people get their angry box turned over. You know, my wife had an expression, she's an East Texas girl, and she grew up up here at Gladewater, and she never ceased to amaze me in the first maybe 15, 20 years of our married life. I think once a week I heard a new colloquialism from East Texas. I learned what the hoorah bush was. Uh, do you know what that is? Any of you know what the hoorah bush is? That's where parents take kids when they've been naughty, take them outside to the hoorah bush. That means it's a willow bush, and they get a little switch, and they get that switch on those legs, and pretty soon the kid's saying, hoorah, except I guess they're yelling, you know. But I didn't know what in the world that meant until my wife enlightened me. I'll take you out to the hoorah bush, young man. And she gets high behind. You know what that means? That means she's vacuuming the rug. She's working real hard, high behind. That means your shoulders are down next to the rug, you know, and so on. Well, 
She allowed as how that somebody, when they get tickled, have their tickle box turned over. It's kind of like you got this little black box inside of you, like a gyro, you know. And if you get tickled about something, it turns over your tickle box. A little child can get that way. They can just be absolutely hilarious. Well, some people have, it's like a gyro, and I want to draw that analogy, with regard to anger or their attitude. And that attitude box, that anger box, gets turned over, and it seems like there's no way to get it right side up. Now, you're all aware of the story of Jonah, and I won't read all the way through it, how Jonah had to go to Nineveh, and he had to drag the seaweed behind him and walk through the city, you know, every single day, proclaiming to the king and all who would listen, in exactly 30 days, this great city, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, is going to come thundering down because God has pronounced his judgments on you people. Well, Jonah had to go through hell on earth to be able to qualify for that message. As a matter of fact, he is typical of the individual who descended into what is called hell, or Hades, or the grave, and came back out of it in the story of the swallowing of the great fish. And, of course, he had been put to such terrible pain and trouble and suffering, privation. Can you imagine what it smells like in the belly of a fish? Can you imagine what it must have been like in there? Benny told me a story that made me so sick. He said that, you know, growing up on a chicken ranch, his father actually caught a big old snake that was so big it had swallowed a couple free baby chickens. And his father got out there, killed a snake, and ripped it up, and two of those chickens got up and walked away. Now, that just about made me sick, because I had there was a documentary not long ago where they were showing a snake swallowing a frog on Channel 13, and I turned it off. I couldn't even watch it. That frog's about halfway down. He's struggling. This old evil snake's mouth is there, and the frog is slowly disappearing. Can you imagine the experience those chickens had? What they went back and told all the other little chicks about what, <laughs> what happened to them. Think about poor old Jonah, because he went through something not unlike that. Finally, Jonah gets very, very impassioned because he had been through it, and he believed in his message, and he really put his whole being into it. You people are going to pay. And I think maybe some of the motivation that Jonah felt was what he'd gone through to kind of hone him as a sharpened instrument for God to make sure that he proclaimed that message to those people of Nineveh. Well... They repented. The king proclaimed a national holiday. They all put on sackcloth. They didn't eat, and they didn't even feed their animals. And they wailed, and they cried, and they got on their knees and said, Oh, Lord, please forgive us. Chapter 4 of the book of Jonah, verse 1, But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was very angry. Now, the word to be angry in the Greek this is the Hebrew, but it's transliterated in the Greek, which we read in Ephesians 4.26, Be ye angry and sin, sin not, comes from the word from which we take the word orgy. It's orgizo, from orgy, meaning desire or reaching forth or excitement of the mind, violent passion, ire, abhorrence, anger, indignation, vengeance, wrath. All of those are implied, a heightening of the senses, the hot flush of human emotion. Orgizo means, that was its root, but it means to provoke or to become exasperated. You know what it is to become exasperated? Ex-aspirate. You aspire, meaning your wind goes out. You exhale. You say, ah, and I'm mad. You know, it is a, an emotional reaction. Now, we all know what anger does to us. Anger can cause very constructive things to happen sometimes. Sometimes people, people can use anger, perhaps in a boxing match or in some competition, to have a great deal of determination, and they can actually be motivated to win. 
I suppose that can happen sometimes at a basketball or a football game. Controlled anger can be something which could perhaps be channeled into a constructive direction. But most of the time it is a very hot, flush-faced, immediate reaction of the viscera of various glands like the adrenal gland in our human bodies, which kind of suddenly causes our heart to thump away much more rapidly, gets our palms sweaty, our faces hot, causes perspiration on the brow, and gets us just filled with a fluid which gives us a complete instant shot of the sugars the body is producing, which gives us a great deal of energy. Now, there are several degrees of anger. We've all experienced certain degrees of anger. Have, has anyone in this room, though, and I don't want a showing of hands, I'm just proposing, has anyone completely just lost their mind? Have you ever been reduced to complete gibberish? You were so angry? There have been many people who have thrown themselves literally to the floor, you know, shoot on the rug, had a tantrum to where they simply could not articulate another single word. They were reduced to utter uh, oblivion by the hatred and the anger that filled their heart. Jonah wasn't that way, but he was very, very angry. And he prayed unto the Eternal and said, I pray thee, O Eternal, isn't this what I told you when I was yet in my country? Therefore I fled before unto Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger. One of the qualities of God is that he is slow to anger. 1 Corinthians 13, that beautiful chapter about love, which is, in that particular case, one of the great graces, charity, along with faith and hope. And it says of love so many times that it is not puffed up, and I quote, is not easily provoked, is not easily provoked. I think it was yesterday in the news, someone shot at somebody else on, I believe, the North Central Expressway in Dallas. So now it is in Dallas. Now, you could go to all of these dozens of newspaper reporters and have one of the biggest arguments you've ever gotten into in your life about the responsibility of the press in all of this, because I am of the opinion that when the very first person shot at the other person on the Los Angeles freeways, if the press had never reported it, it would have happened once. But the press reported it. And so all the copycats and the flacos and the weirdos and the people out here who completely emotionally unresponsible, irresponsible, the kind of people I think I'm talking about, basically, in a world which just tears at the fabric of maturity and of mental stability and causes all of the emotional upsets. And so many of them begin to repeat it. You have to imagine for a moment living with a man who was six foot six, maybe a big logger with biceps so thick he couldn't even put his tie on without just flipping it over the back and sawing it under his collar and a little lady who is only about 5'2 and weighs 98 soaking wet. And what if he is a man who is given a terrible temper, and suddenly in a terrible spate of frenzied temper he just hauls off and smacks her with the right fist? Well, he's probably going to kill the woman, isn't he? And it does happen. It's happened many, many times. Now, once I heard it happen in reverse. The fellow got up in the morning, he'd been out kind of catting around the night before and had had way too much to drink, apparently. He woke up and staggered into the mirror, and he looked, and he couldn't believe it. He had a black eye. And he, you know, tried to wash the horrible taste out of his mouth and get himself looking reasonable and went into his wife, all apologetic, and said, Honey, I'm awful sorry. I guess you noticed I came home with a black eye last night. She said, No, you didn't. You didn't have the black eye when you came home. 
Well, she waited her moment, you know, and maybe he said something that he deserved that black eye. But she gave it to him. God, it says here, and this is true because Jonah was speaking the truth about God, is a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger. Does that describe you? Does it describe you in church, in your marriage, in your family, in your business, in your associations among friends? Does it describe you in a line of bumper-to-bumper traffic? Does it describe you in the cafeteria when someone elbows in front of you? Does it describe you in the uh, elevator when somebody pushes you out of the way as the door is about to close? Does it describe you in every situation of life? Now, if a great big 6'6", 220-pound logger could literally fracture the jaw of a wife if he lost his temper, what could God do if God lost his temper? You have to imagine what it would be like if someone with the power of God acted the way we sometimes do in human situations, because you're talking about the capacity for the destruction of all of mankind, or the whole universe for that, that matter. And he went on to say, of great kindness, and repent thee of the evil. Therefore now, O Eternal, take, I be th- beseech thee, my life from me. And that seems to be something people always come up with. When they're just really reduced to such anger they can't handle it, so I might as well go off somewhere and die. I think I'll go kill myself. You know, that's what some of them say. It's better to die than live. And the Eternal said to him, Dost thou well to be angry? You know, we never get an answer from Jonah. People, because Jonah's mentioned in the Bible, they think Jonah must have been a righteous man. I'm not so sure. We don't have the situation resolved by the end of the book. We really don't know what Jonah's attitude was after the book was closed and the story has now been completed. Jonah goes out, as you know, and made this little booth. And God caused this kind of a castor bean plant. It's called a palma Christi in the Bible to sort of spring up and grow very, very quickly. And he was exceeding glad of the gourd, as it's called, of this castor bean plant, verse 6, because it was very hot and it provided him with some shade. And like a lot of times we will do, my wife and I wander around our backyard. We go out and look at the uh, various plants and some of the flowering shrubs. And we say, isn't it beautiful? Or look at our lovely tree. And you will be very thankful about something like that that provides some shade. But God prepared a worm on the morning rose the next day, and it smote the gourd that it withered. And it came to pass when the sun did rise that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat upon the head of Jonah that he fainted, and wished in himself to die, and said, It's better for me to die than to live. He was really angry, really upset. Now he was really doubly angry because the shade was gone. And God said to Jonah, Dost thou well to be angry for the gourd? And he said, I do well to be angry even unto death. What an attitude. Have you ever had an argument with someone that was just about like that? You know, sometimes we get to the point that is called the last straw, or we say, that did it, you know, just before the things fly, like the hairbrush or the pots and pans or the fisticuffs or what have you. He said, I be well to be angry, verse 9, even unto death. And then God gave him this example. You've had pity on this plant, this castor bean which you did not labor for, neither did you make it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And should I not spare Nineveh, that great city, wherein are more than six score thousand persons that cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand and also much cattle? Unfortunately, Jonah's response is missing. We don't know what he said. We are led to believe he had a rather negative response, that he didn't really come up with the answer God wanted. I have been very angry in my life many, many times. I got very angry with my own father, and I learned, much to my chagrin, 
that that statement in the book of Proverbs is absolutely accurate. Not only a brother offended is harder to be won than a walled city, but a father offended is equally as difficult to win back. You can, in the course of your human relations with other human beings, give yourself to anger, lose your equilibrium, have your angry box so turned over that you seemingly can never get it set right again, and you can, with your mouth, say things that are as lethal to human relations as a bullet to the heart. You can cut to the heart a human being you love very much and destroy a wonderful relationship. There was a little old lady who up in northern Minnesota had one of the most lovely gardens I've ever seen. She was up in her 90s when she died and she was out there with a hoe and a rake and we always just admired the garden because it had neat little walkways of grass and the neatest little rows of every kind of a delicate vegetable you could imagine. She planted everything as if she had planted each seed by hand, which I think she did. And we so admired her garden. It was so delicate, so beautiful. It's absolutely a work of art. Could you imagine what that garden would have looked like if somebody, just as it rained, took a great big old D9 caterpillar and just did a few wheelies through it, took a couple of sacks of salt, poured them all over the garden, and then just took a rake or a hoe or maybe a big plow or a disc and did a couple of, of uh, sections back and forth across it. Now look at the garden. What does it look like? That's exactly what human relations must look like to Almighty God whether in church, the home, business, between brother and brother, father and son, mother and daughter, of which we are capable because of our anger box being turned over, of virtually destroying. For many, many years when I was flying jet aircraft, I had to go through checklists and to many times go to flight safety for refresher courses. And of course at that time flying more sophisticated equipment than this King Air E-90, it was a kind of a different atmosphere on the flight deck, kind of laid back. You have a kind of a, of a camaraderie in a cockpit, and yet we still have a checklist, and we go right down the line on certain items that are very, very important. Didn't matter. Ed Black, though he had spent all of those years, 30-some years in the Air Force, and had even flown in the MAC squadron, had flown two different vice presidents of the United States, had many more thousands of hours than I've got, probably 20,000, 30,000 hours to my six or so. He always went through the very same routine in the cockpit. If I was flying left seat in the G2 and we taxied out, just as we were to take the active runway, before I would put the power on the airplane to take off, he would say with the same monotonous tone, in the event of an emergency at VR, you continue to fly the airplane, I will handle all emergency checklist items. In the event of an emergency at VR, which is V-rotate, V1, V-rotate, V2, which is flight, first segment of the flight, there's one thing the pilot must do, fly the airplane. And that means you nail that horizontal gyro and your airspeed and your altimeter. And you keep that airplane, even if it's only on one engine, because the envelope says it will fly at X number of feet in certain configurations with one engine windmilling on one engine. And you pay attention to it and you save your life and the lives of all of your passengers. If you do not pay attention, you and your passengers die. Many twin-engine pilots, especially those of medium and light twins who have not practiced single-engine landing, single-engine emergencies, 
and perhaps do not fly with a co-pilot, which might be advisable in some of those aircraft, especially like a Beach Baron, which has a great deal of torque on one of the engines. And if they experience an engine out, there are many, many cases where they simply do not continue to fly the airplane. They get distracted by the emergency. They try to do too many things at once. They take their mind off their attitude. The one main gyro you look at all your life in flying, about a three-inch gyro, is called the attitude gyro, the horizontal gyro that shows the artificial horizon. In a thunderstorm, when you're being tossed around, all kinds of forces, energies like wind shear, as they call it, which is merely downdrafts and updrafts, or winds that can come from any direction, sometimes up to 100 miles an hour and more, which can drop a big jet out of the sky like a rock, as we so well know. A downburst hitting an airplane can so change the configuration because an airplane is swimming through a blanket of air in the same way a fish swims through water. And it's being kept up there by the rush of air over the wings, getting rid of incipient drag and creating lift, which causes the airplane to remain aloft. You simply dump all of that lift all of a sudden. There's nothing but drag, and it's seeking air to fly through fast enough to get more lift, and suddenly there's no air there because you've gone from a headwind to maybe a tailwind or even a crosswind all of a sudden, and that great big airliner over here at Dallas, the uh, forgotten the number of the flight, but about a year ago, the big L-1011 that belonged to Delta, that went in, experienced a microburst from a very nearby thunderstorm when he was in a landing configuration that just simply dropped the airplane because there was no more air there to cause the lift, and all of those people died. Terrible, terrible tragedy. There's quite an analogy there to life because it is called an attitude gyro. And let me just make a profound statement. I don't care how much doctrine you know, Satan the devil knows more than you do. Satan the devil knows doctrine backwards and forwards. And yet I have seen people argue over some doctrine way the other side of the millennium, having to do with something which allegedly is going to take place out somewhere in the reaches of eternity. And because someone else will not agree with them, they become angry because they have this idea baby over which they're very, very jealous. And they become angry with their brother. And that anger becomes quite hot and passionate. And eventually, they simply split. They go off, form their own group, start another church, leave this church, do whatever. And anger and disagreement over some little doctrinal tenet was the problem. Let me tell you that Almighty God is going to judge you on your attitude way before he's going to judge you on how much doctrine you know, on your mental or your intellect and your grasp of various difficult scriptures in the book of Zechariah. He says very clearly in Isaiah, the 66th chapter, to this man will I look to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembles at my word. That's the one to whom God will look, to him it is cast down, poor and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at God's word. In Ecclesiastes 7, 9, it says, Be not hasty in your spirit to be angry. And in Ephesians 4, 26, Be ye angry, acknowledging we can get angry, and sin not. So anger can conceive and bring forth sin. But you can control anger. I found there were one or two little things that hopefully I've been able to overcome in the last few years, the last ten at least. There were times when I used to get quite upset, quite angry with certain circumstances or with certain people. As the years have gone on, I found it's much more uh, likely that in a case of some emergency or some ruffled feathers or hurt feelings that I'm going to sit there and listen to it, remain quite calm, 
and try to think of the ship that is just plowing along and kind of shouldering the waves and the flotsam and jetsam and the garbage aside, but continuing on its course, pretty much undeterred and unmolested, and not let things upset your course because they come along and are some kind of a problem. We use the term that I'm upset. Well, it gets back to my black box, not the tickle box, but the angry box. That's a very good term. People use that term all the time. I'm upset. You're wrong. That's it. It should just go down that way in history. Anybody who ever says to you, I'm upset, is wrong. Absolutely wrong. You tell me. Somebody come forward with great erudition, historical grasp of all the facts, and point to me to Scripture where Christ was upset in the way that these people mean they are upset. When did he get upset? I've heard people arguing over forgiveness as recently as a week or so ago. An argument took place among a couple of people about whether or not you should be in an attitude of forgiveness. And the response was, no, you don't forgive until they ask for forgiveness. Did you hear the Roman soldiers and the Jews at the foot of the stake asking for forgiveness? Or didn't Jesus say, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do? When did Jesus ever have his angry box turned over? When did he become provoked? When did he become so angry that he actually took out his wrath upon someone when he very plainly said to those who were persecuting him as he was dying, Do you not know that all I have to do is to ask my Father and he will send me ten legions of angels? But he said, I must fulfill my destiny. It is my destiny to die for the sins of the world. Almighty God says over and over again that attitude is the whole thing. Attitude is what is going to judge us. Attitude is what can wreck us. Maintaining equilibrium, keeping a right attitude, is the whole thing. In Titus, the first chapter, and verse 6, I want to turn here just to conclude in a few moments with a few statements of the Apostle Paul. Speaking of the ministry, if any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly, for a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, meaning a brawler, someone whose temper simply goes and he just resorts to fisticuffs, a minister resorting to violence. Not given to filthy lucre, in other words, worshipping materialism and money, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped to subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. The ministry of Jesus Christ was never promised they were going to have it easy. They were told, rather, that they're going to be persecuted, that sometimes they can work and strive, as the Apostle Paul did, to the utmost limits of their own physical endurance and still have people very, very suspicious of them, hostile toward them, suspicious of their motives, judging them in absentia, not even knowing them. How does it happen in the case of people years ago that I remember who had come so joyously into God's church, who lived perhaps in Georgia or Washington State or Nebraska? And over a period of time, because of certain assumed attitudes, 
what was a wonderful, almost like a honeymoon experience of becoming a member of God's church and going to the festivals and attending Sabbath services and so on, became a very sour experience. And they began to assume certain things about the ministry. And they became angry, and they became upset, and they left. Time and time and time again, I've seen that little game that people play of holding out to you a particular doctrinal argument, a particular disagreement, when that is a dissembling and is not the real factor that has them upset. Oftentimes we're that way in our human relations in a family. We become irked or irritated, perhaps it's something we have done and of which we feel guilty and we take it out on the other person. Jesus Christ of Nazareth was an individual who had his emotions under iron control, who flew straight and level, who had the anger box right side up, who was provoked more than any of us have ever been. You have never, for the sake of your faith, had anyone come up and spit right in your eye. Not a person in this room or along the tape program where 2,000 some people will hear this sermon later on, I do not believe, has ever had a bone broken, or there, and he, of course, didn't have his bones broken because God assured that that would not be so, but he had his flesh ripped open, he had himself beaten within an inch of his life, and then actually killed on the stake for the sins of the world, and yet you cannot find him calling those Romans miserable wretches or fools, but instead saying, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. It's interesting to me when I see people giving in to anger, giving in to hatred, that suddenly they don't care about the United States of Europe. Suddenly they're not concerned about American involvement in the Middle East and the Persian Gulf. Suddenly they don't care about the hideous imbalance in the balance of payments deficits that went soaring over $40 billion last month, about the interest rates going up, the shock to the stock market, the potential of a global economic collapse. Suddenly they're not concerned about the nearness of the second coming of Christ. The big issues just don't matter anymore. All that matters is self-justification, self-vindication. I want my way. How like a little child it is. Parents who recognize the difference between the cry of a baby when he is tired, when he wants attention, or when he is angry. And a parent can sure tell the difference in the tone of voice when they begin to let you know they are mad. I remember fellow that I golf with once in a while was out there, and he has a very strange stance. And he loves to have his arms way out straight and that left elbow locked absolutely straight like this, the club way away from him, when, of course, you look at a professional, they have a completely different stance and set up on the ball. But he is a pretty good golfer with all the handicaps that he's built in for himself. He still plays reasonably good golf. What, of course, frustrates me half to death is he's beat me a few times, and he's got a weird-looking swing, all right? But another fellow that I know saw him on the practice tee one time, and he came up there, and just kind of joshing him, because, you know, truer words are never spoken except in jest oftentimes. And he said, look at that old boy over there all stiff all over like that, kind of making fun of him. Have you ever had a child throw a temper tantrum when you try to pick them up, and it's like picking up a two-before, a board? They're absolutely stiff. They're rigid like this. You can't bend them. Now think of all the places in the Bible where God characterizes our forebears as stiff-necked Israelites. How they are adamant, which means hard, doesn't it? Stiff-necked. 
and they will not be pliant and they will not bend a little. Well, Almighty God wants us, first, foremost, and always, to go back to the very original beginning tenets of Christianity. And as I've said for many years, the only thing wrong with Christianity is very few people have ever given it a try. So let's try to control anger. Let's try to be humble and not easily provoked. Let's try, like a ship that is plowing along, to let little minor things just flow by and abreast the swells and let them go by and not let them upset us. Let's try to keep our relationships, whether with one another in the church and especially between ourselves and God, a beautiful, lovely relationship, like the garden I was telling about up in northern Minnesota, something that is beautiful and to be cared for and not something which is ugly in God's sight. Keep your anger box right side up.